All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. We got a lot of ground to cover in the next few weeks. And um, so I'm going to pray and we're going to take off <laughs> and get going here. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. I thank you for this group. Thank you, Lord, for what you have in store for us through these sessions. I thank you, Father, for the Word of God. I thank you that you've chosen to reveal to us, not just the times that we're living in, but ahead, the times that are ahead. And we've read the end of the story, and we know how it all ends, and we are thankful that we serve the risen King, who is the conquering King in Revelation 19, who comes back riding on a white horse, and who has all dominion and all authority. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And as we begin this journey, I am asking you to bathe it by the Holy Spirit, Lord. I'm asking you to kiss this study. I'm asking you to kiss this group that you will bind us together, that you will help us to understand. It is the Spirit of God that brings revelation knowledge. I can't do that. I can only study, prepare, and deliver the Word to the best of my ability. But it is the Holy Spirit's anointing that makes the difference. It is the anointing that breaks the yoke. It is the Holy Spirit who brings revelation. And so I'm asking you, Father, to use me as your instrument, that you receive the glory, and that your Spirit will anoint this Word. And God, I'm asking you to speak to each and every person each and every week and let them take from these lessons that which you have ordained for them in Jesus name amen and amen all right welcome to everyone and uh, so and here comes brother Todd so I'll repeat it I thank the the uh, leadership of this church and I thank our pastors for letting me do this study and for being a part of that and uh, so I just pray you can pass that on to pastor Murphy as well so I'm submitted to the authority here, and I want to recognize and honor them. And uh, I'm grateful that they would allow me to be able to bring this word to you. So, okay, let's get started. All right, most of you know me, so I don't think I have to do any introduction of myself. I am Kay Mortimer, and, um, and so come on in. Welcome. And so I want to introduce this study to you. Um, I have only had confirmation in the last few weeks that this is the time. This is the study, and this is the time. And there is an electricity that I feel of the Holy Spirit in the air. And I believe that Billy Graham's death was key to that. Uh, it has a spiritual significance. It has a prophetic significance. I'm telling you, when I watched the funeral the other day and, and Ann Graham Lotz got up and started speaking, I felt like I was going to be raptured right then. I was, I, my body, I got so excited, I just felt I had to come off that couch because she was saying exactly what was registering in my spirit, that his death is so key to what God is now releasing. And when I found out that Wednesday morning that he had died, I mean, to me... I understand that there's mourning and there's sorrow, but I didn't sense any of that. I was electrified. I was like, yes, here we go, because I just knew the Spirit of the Lord had already spoken to me and told me months ago to watch the year that Billy Graham dies. And I don't know exactly what all of that means, but I will tell you this, that a day or two after his death, 
the exact same scripture came to me that pastor shared that had come to him. And it was this one from Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And I believe in the year that Billy Graham dies, in some way, maybe, maybe, just maybe, we might even get to see him face to face. Maybe this is the year of the rapture. But whatever it means, God has got great things in store for this year that are spiritual, that are significant, and that are major. And I don't know what all it is, but I know one thing, I'm electrified. And so that just confirmed to me that this study is a timely study for the days in which we're living, and especially now. So, with that little bit of introduction, <clears throat> I want to point out how we want to do this. When I taught this in my Wednesday night class the first time I went through the book of Revelation, we did it in 46 lessons. So that's a weekly lesson. That's almost an entire year, didn't we, Judy? We were in it all year long. <laughs> and it was good, and it was deep. <laughs> well, praise God. To God be the glory for that. And if my class will allow me, I feel directed of the Lord that we would go deep into that again, possibly later this year, starting that maybe in the fall. Because I can't take 46 lessons and cover everything that I covered in those in a 12-week study like this, okay? And I'm not going to ask you to come out on a Monday night for an entire year to do the full study. Any of you that are interested in going deeper when we get done with this lesson, I will repeat it in my Wednesday night class so you can... Um, you can go deeper with us then. And Judy, I've already tell you now, God's got some new stuff that's fresh that he's already been doing with me, even when we redo that lesson. It's amazing to me, and I don't know, Brother Todd, if you find this to be true or not, but I know I do. When we're, when we're preparing something and studying, even if it's something we've taught before, God always gives something fresh to it. He always will give me some new direction or something else that I hadn't seen before or take me to a new place. And uh, so I want you to understand that this particular study, I cannot go verse by verse and go as in-depth as I did in an entire year. There's no way to do that and cover it adequately in a 12-week study. But what I am going to do is do the best that I can over the next 12 weeks to give you as thorough a job as I can over all of the topics and sections of everything that is spoken of in the book of Revelation. We are going to go point by point through what happens in the book, what the book reveals to us, okay? So, in order to do that, I'm not going to be able to read a lot from the book of Revelation when we're in class together. So, my request to you is that when we start this, like next week, next week's lesson, we're planning on doing Revelation chapters 1 through 3. So to prepare for that, you can read those in, in advance of next week's lesson, and then when we come, you'll know where we're going to be and all of that. So that way we'll, we'll take it through but that will allow me to save some of the time that we're together and actually cover more material with you by doing that. Because when we're here, 
What I found is this. When I went through this, when the Lord first told me to teach this class, I was like, God, you sure you got the right person? I mean, I was kind of like, Gideon, are you sure? Well, who's this mighty warrior? Are you talking to somebody else? Or kind of like Moses, I don't know that I can do this because I've never considered myself and still don't any kind of prophecy expert at all. I mean, I'm the lowest of the low. I don't consider myself. I've not devoted myself to full, in-depth study of that. So I don't take this lightly to have the Lord put something in my heart that I feel totally inadequate to teach. And yet I said, God, if you will show me, I will do it. And so what I found was that he took me and he took me through so much of the word and gave me so much insight that I had no idea was hidden there. And so the Lord began to develop that in me. So please know that I don't consider myself some prophecy expert. There are plenty of godly men and women that I know that have devoted themselves to years and years and years of studying the scripture on end times and prophetic things. And so I will pay homage to them and some, uh, some respect to them, I mean, um, in regard to this study and in the development of the study. And at times I'll refer to some of their materials. But I, I decided then, I was like, okay, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I want to know what does the word say about these things. I don't mind relying on their opinions. I don't mind study, commentary, study some of these other people. But what does the word itself tell us? And I discovered a few things in, in studying the book of Revelation. There is, first of all, I'll tell you this, just as to whet your appetite a little bit. There's a lot of Jewishness in the book of Revelation. And I think that's one reason why the Gentile church has not fully understood more of it because they haven't understood the Jewish connection to it, okay? So I'll be bringing out some of that starting next week, as a matter of fact, um, and you'll see that. And tonight, hopefully by the end of this service, you'll understand why that is true and why we need to look at that. All right. Now... I, um, like I said, I felt totally inadequate to do that, but the Lord showed me many things, and I brought this with me. Um, many of you know that I enjoy doing a bunch of jigsaw puzzles. It's just one of the ways that I take some downtime and, and enjoy um, rest when, I, when the Lord calls me to Sabbath rest, and that's one thing he's really dealing with me on now is that that's not a waste of my time. It's absolutely necessary for me to recharge. And so he's teaching me how to take Sabbath rest because I'm not one to stop. I like to go and I like to do. And uh, I can push myself way beyond where I should. And the, I think some of the times when I've gotten sick and stuff, it's been the Lord's way of showing me I needed you to rest and you needed to slow down. And um, so I just, I'm trying to learn that now so that I can be recharged on a regular basis and ready to do his work. And um, what the Lord has shown me, one of the things he's shown me is that I, I, brought, I said all of that because this is one of the things I do in my downtime. And when I have gone through the word, I have found that there's so much more there than we've ever understood. And I want you to understand this. God's word, the Bible, is just like this. It's just like a box of jigsaw puzzles. God has taken... The whole of Scripture, everything he wants us to know in Scripture, and he has planted little bits all throughout. 
it's like the jigsaw pieces. There's little pieces of it. And he sprinkles some in, in Genesis, and he sprinkles some in Isaiah, and he sprinkles some in Psalms, and he sprinkles some in Matthew, and he sprinkles some in Acts, and he sprinkles some in Revelation, and in Zechariah, and in, in all the books of the Bible. And it talks about in the Proverbs, it says, it's the, the glory of kings to conceal, uh, the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to seek it out. And so what he wants us to do is to dig into the book he gave us that is the full and complete revelation that we need. He wants us to dig in there and find all the pieces and see how they fit together. And when we do that, we see the picture of what God is doing. And so that's what I found with my study of the, Revel of the book of Revelation, is that God has put so many pieces in his word all throughout that will explain what Revelation is telling us. And so much of the imagery is already found elsewhere in Scripture. And so that's why I titled this study, Back to the Future, Discovering Jesus in the Apocalypse. Because we have to understand what's coming ahead, what's ahead for us, what's in the future. We have to go back to what God has promised and revealed to us in his word because he's already dropped it all throughout his word and our job in any study of scripture is to connect the dots it's to find those places and figure out how they fit together and so one of the earliest things that I learned in the study of scripture is that you let scripture interpret scripture so when you have a question about something in a study of the word Look for other places in the scripture that will expound on that or that will explain that to you. Let scripture interpret scripture. That's one of the best and most vital basic principles of the study of anything in scripture. All right. Now, <clears throat> this book, I don't know about y'all, but this has always been one of the books that I've avoided reading <laughs> in scripture. I have read it through in the past but it's never been one that I would always turn to and love to read through. And I did that for the same reason that many of you probably do. It's hard to understand. And it kind of scares us. And we don't really always get what it's talking about. And so we tend to avoid reading that. But I want to show you, and I'll, as you read through Revelation, you'll see this. It is the only book of the entire 66 books of the Bible that has a blessing on it for reading it. In two or three places, several places in the book of Revelation itself, it says, blessed is he who reads and who hears and who guards the words of this book. And I'm going to talk a little more about that next week. But out of all 66 books, God puts a special blessing on this one and says, you'll be blessed if you read it. And yet, that's the one that we tend to avoid reading. That's the one that tends to scare us the most. So, I encourage you to get over that, like I had to do. And let's read the book of Revelation. And hopefully, by the end of this study, more of it will, you will understand much more of it. And you won't be so afraid to read it and to pick it up. Okay? So... Why are we doing this now? 
Well, we've already talked a little bit about Billy Graham's funeral. I do believe that that was significant. There's also some things going on with Israel that are very significant now. As a matter of fact, the time of things um, with the nation of Israel is significant. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. And I, I remember Ann Graham Lotz, when she was there, I've already told you how excited I was. She talked about how Billy Graham's death was like the death of Moses. And after Moses came Joshua. And this is true. The connection between Joshua and Yeshua in the New Testament, the name is almost the same. The name comes from the same root, same Hebrew words for Joshua and for Yeshua. And so it's interesting. There is, I believe, a very significant connection there. And so we're going to study more about Yeshua as a matter of fact, let next week I'll bring this out too. But the very first part of that book says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the entire book, even though we might not understand some of the imagery and all of that, and we're going to seek out and study that this time, but the entire book is to reveal Jesus to us and what's ahead concerning Jesus the Christ first place we're going to start reading tonight is in Acts chapter 2. How do we know that we are living in the last days? We hear that phrase, and we've heard people say that, but how do we know that to be fact? How do we know it's true? In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Peter's standing up. He, he rises up because people have questions, and they're like, what's this all about? And it's only the, you know, the early in the day, and everybody's drunk and all this kind of stuff. And Peter stands up. It says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On your maidservants and your men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved all right so there we have Peter rising up this is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost has just happened earlier in Acts chapter 2 and now um, Peter rises up because they had questions about it and he's under the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God now remember this is the same man that just prior to this not long before, had, had cursed and said, I don't even know the man, and denied Jesus three times. But God had restored him. Jesus came and restored him in John chapter 21. And so now we come to this. He's been faithful. He's prayed. He's sought the Lord. He's tarried just like the Lord said. And whoosh, here comes the Holy Spirit blowing in, and there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this day. And so he gets up and he makes a declaration here. And he takes this passage that you can also read in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He takes that passage and he says, 
that passage was speaking of right now. And when he, when he set, does that, he is saying, if he's saying that that passage applies to now, he is saying that this is the time that Joel prophesied about. And Joel specifically called it the last days. So the last days, Peter said, began 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2. So we know that we're in the last days, obviously, because he, he made that declaration. So now that we are 2,000 years into the last days, we need to understand that we are in the last of the last of the last days, okay? And I find this interesting, too. I was thinking about this, and the Lord just reminded me of this. It's just like when Jesus turned the water into wine. And what did the, what did the man say? He said, you know, this is strange, because usually you, you bring the best out at first, but Jesus had saved the best for last. And I believe we're going to find that to be true. He saved the best for last. We're in for the greatest outpouring that we've ever seen. We're, great at, we're in for the greatest harvest. God is at work. And we can get bogged down sometimes in reading news and, and hearing Fox News and listening to the commentators and all that kind of stuff. And we can get bogged down in this fight over taxes and fight over immigration and fight over all this other kind of stuff. And sometimes our minds get drawn to that instead of realizing, wait a minute, this is the most exciting time ever to be alive because God is on the move. God has already set in place an end times harvest and an end times miraculous outpouring. And we are that generation and we're living in that time. So if it's true that we are in the last days, then we need to understand what our generation means biblically, according to scripture. To do that and to know what's ahead, what did Jesus say about it? We look at Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And it is when the, the disciples came and they said, hey, what's going to be the end of, the, uh, end of times? What is going to look like? And all of that. And Jesus sits down and he begins to go through it all with them. And we're going to read a few of those verses tonight. I encourage you to read it on your own at some point. But everything that Jesus had to say about it, for the most part, is condensed in those. But I want to read a few passages from those chapters, and I first want to go to Matthew 24 and read verses 32 through 51. I'm only going to read a section of this just for the sake of time, but I want to focus on this because Jesus himself said that the generation that sees this one thing happen will absolutely know that you your generation will not pass away until everything else he said comes to pass so if that's true jesus said that then i think it's pretty important for us to know what that one thing is that's the catalyst that launches us into the fulfillment of everything christ has spoken and prophesied and all that is ahead so he gives us this thing and he prefaces with this he says there's one key event that's going to begin everything and it's found one passage one reading of it is in Matthew 24 verses 32 through 51 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of the day and hour, no one knows, <clears throat> not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to meet, beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. That's one reading of that same passage. You can read it in Mark 13, 28 through 37. And in Luke 21, 29 through 36. All three places speak of some of these very same things that Jesus addressed in this reading. And I want to point out something here because there's a few differences that I'm going to point out to you in the three accounts. And then there's one, there's one key thing that is very similar. And that's the, the main point of what he was addressing here. So, in Matthew 24, 32 through 51 that I just read, he gives us more details here about the imminence of Christ's return. And also, he speaks about faithfulness versus laziness in the sense of the servant. Remember, who, who would the Lord find when he comes back doing what he's supposed to be doing faithfully? All right? Versus the lazy one that's going to be judged. In Mark 13, he, Mark is the gospel that if you just want to know, okay, this is what happened and, and this is where it happened and this is how it happened, boom, I'm going to tell you. He gives you kind of the quick details and he doesn't go into a lot of fluff. He doesn't add a lot of stuff to it. He's the quick quick gospel writer, and that's why his is the shortest of all the, the gospel books. He gives you the condensed version and gets to the main point. And in his gospel, his main point is, watch. He sums it up in one word, watch. Because Jesus is coming back. He stresses in his gospel the imminent return 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in two weeks, we're going to be dealing with the rapture. And, and I'm going to bring out some of the different ideas about that, but we're going to look at what the Scripture says about what the church calls the rapture and that event. That'll be in two weeks. And it is an imminent return of the Lord. And so Mark is stressing that here, which is why he says, watch and keep on watching. Luke 21, he stresses and warns against not being ready when the Lord returns. He says in verse, 20, in verse 34, pay attention to yourselves, lest at any time, if ever, your hearts will be weighed down and burdened with three things he mentions. One is carousing, and that's talking about basically the seizing of pain or a headache from being drunken. It's kind of like that, um, uh, that hangover, I guess, is how they describe it. I've never been drunk, so I don't know. But I think it's a hangover. That's sort of what this is talking about, the carousing. It's where you've gone out and you've committed various sins and, and leisure and all of that, and it's, it's that God giddy foolishness, in, being engulfed with pleasures, carousing. He also mentions drunkenness or intoxication as well, not to be intoxicated. You can be intoxicated by more things than just alcohol. You can be addicted to more things than just alcohol, and that's what this is talking about. Don't let any kind of intoxication or drunkenness come in. But the big one to me that probably applies to most all of us is, he says, the cares of this life. That's the one that gets us the most. And Luke warns us, he says, don't let at any time your hearts get weighed down with the cares of this life. And what he's talking about there are distractions that distract you. You know what a distraction is? Clearance racks. Clearance racks. You go in Walmart and you go in there to buy two things. You go in to buy milk and bread. You know, everybody buys milk and bread all the time. And yet, what do you see? Clearance racks. And then, of course, you've got to go check out what's on the clearance rack. Or there'll be a, co a color that draws your attention away or whatever. So you get distracted. You get distracted from the thing that you're really focused and went in there for to begin with. Distractions can be anything. Distractions can be this. Big distractions. We can spend so much time on Facebook or on Twitter or on Fox News. I got a Fox News app on my phone, and so I play those videos a lot. I like to get my Fox News on that. But I can be distracted by that. And that's why I've started listening to more of the audio Bible instead of the Fox News app. Because I want my mind to be focused where it needs to be focused. So I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be weighed down by these distractions of any kind, whatever they are. We need to focus, and, and this helps us to realize, even in Hebrews he talked about this, to lay aside every sin that easily besets us and every weight. And the weight could be good things. 
We could be distracted because we're so busy doing all kinds of good things that our focus is not on the God things God wants us to be involved in. Do you see what I'm saying? So sometimes we have to reprioritize. Sometimes we have to reevaluate our lives. I know I've had to do that many times and realize, wait a minute, what am, what am I chasing after or what am I busy doing that God's not called me to do? I have a lot of dreams about things I want to write. And, and, you know, I've been to several writers' conferences. Matter of fact, this weekend I'll be, gone, I'll be going to a writers' conference. And, and so I go to some of these and, you know, and, and I'll, I'll think, well, I can write about this, and I can write about this, and I can write about this, and I can write about this, because I've got a vast array of, of different directions I can go. And, you know, whenever I first started writing and stuff, I would get distracted like that. And I would think, well, I need to be writing about this, and, but then I need this and all this stuff. And when you're trying to do so many things, you don't do any of them well. And so the Lord had to show me, no, you focus. Somebody else can write about that. Your job's not to write about that. Your job's to write about this. And so he's had to help me focus on the God things, the things he's called me to do. So sometimes we need to be reminded we have to focus on the God things and lay aside the other that is weight to us, even if it's a good thing. It doesn't have to be bad, but it can become a weight to us and it can be a distraction. Then he ends with watch and pray. And I pray this one every night. I'm like, Lord Jesus, may you come quickly. And I pray in Jesus' name that I will be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming on the earth and to stand before the Son of Man. That we be counted worthy to go at, the, at his appearing and we're not left behind. So all three of these gospel passages tell us to watch and be ready, and they bring out different points. But there's one key thing in common, and this is what launches us into the final generation. And it is what's known as the fig tree prophecy. That is the catalyst for all of the signs according to Jesus. He tells us, when you see this thing happen, when you see this thing called the fig tree blossom and bud, then you will know that that generation is not going to pass away until everything that has been prophesied comes to pass. So if that's the case, then the big, the big question we all would have is, what's the fig tree? Right? If that's what Jesus says starts everything, then we got to know what is the fig tree. And we don't go to some commentary and we don't form our own opinion. We go to the scriptures. We go back to the word and say, okay, God, what do you define as the fig tree? What did you already tell us is the fig tree? So here we go, digging in the box, okay? We're going to find the puzzle piece that fits with that and figure out what did God say is the fig tree because we're letting scripture interpret scripture. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Hosea chapter 9. <clears throat> One of the principles that God has that he established was in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. So when you're trying to understand something from Scripture, we want, you want to make sure that it is established in Scripture by the mouth of two or three. It's two or three witnesses, two or three Scriptures that can support that. 
So Christ does that. He tells us by the mouth of two different prophets, we're fixing to look at one of them, exactly who and what the fig tree is. Hosea chapter 9, we're going to read beginning in verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated them to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they shall bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them that when I depart from them, just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place. So Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderers. Give them, O Lord, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. Now, this is all because of their wickedness, okay? All their wickedness is in Gilgal. There I hated them because of the evils of their deed. I will drive them from my house and love them no more. All the princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Yes, they, they, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God has cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations." All right, there, he goes on with a lot of that, and he's talking about the coming judgment on Israel for their sin. But he makes clear in there that the fathers, when you read about the fathers in the Old Testament, that is three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. The Jewish people refer to them as the fathers. They are the fathers. And it says, I saw the, your fathers as the firstfruits of, on the fig tree in its first season, meaning that Abraham was the first one considered a Jew. So they were the first fruits in its first season. Second place we're going to read is in Joel chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse, we'll read in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And then he goes on and he talks about the chewing locust and all of those things that have happened to them. And then go on down, and we'll read again in verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of lions. He has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. And he's talking about Israel there and the nation that came against Israel. So in both Hosea... And in Joel, God tells us who the fig tree is. The fig tree is his people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Now, we must understand that the nation of Israel is absolutely key it's, it's known as and referred to by many as God's super sign of prophecy. I've heard several of them speak about that. We have to understand that when God caused 
the nation of Israel, who had been estranged from their land, sent in the diaspora to all other lands and mixed among all other peoples for 2,000 years nearly. And yet now, where are they? They're, most of them are in Israel. Many of them are still coming home to Israel in Aliyah. And that's growing year by year by year because God's calling them home. God's calling them to their homeland. And they belong in their homeland, and God's bringing them back. But he started it when the nation of Israel became a nation again. The fig tree has budded and has bloomed. Therefore, according to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we are living in the last generation who will see everything come to pass because his fig tree has budded and blossomed just like he said. And he told us who the fig tree is. Now, let's understand more about how we know that this fig tree of Israel has become budding and blossomed. We know that for nearly 2,000 years it ceased to exist as a nation. And yet this is, the, this is a miraculous thing. Even though it ceased to exist as a nation, God still kept their heritage alive, still kept their scriptures alive, still kept their language alive. And now they are in Israel and they are speaking the Hebrew language. It's, it's an absolute miracle of God. I've got several um, Christian shows that I love to watch, and many of them are from the land of Israel. And I'm hearing Jews, and, and, I, and I'm like, I'm so excited because what God has led me into, the study of Scripture and understanding the Jewishness of the Scriptures, we don't understand. Six, out of 66 books of the Bible, at least 58 of them that we know of are written by Jews. It is a Jewish book. Jesus was a Jewish man. My Messiah, is a, he was a Jew. And we need to understand the things of God from that perspective. And that's what the Gentile church, which just simply means everybody that's not a Jew, that's what we've missed so many times in the past. We haven't understood those connections. It's like connecting the dots. It's like putting the puzzle pieces together. And we have to understand it from God's perspective to see that. So for nearly 2,000 years, they had ceased to exist as a nation. And yet, God said they would come back. God had already prophesied their regathering. God had spoken. And even though years had passed and nothing seemed to be happening, oh, God had a plan. And his word was still just as alive in, in the 1900s as it was the day that he spoke it when he first sent it out of his mouth. Let me give you just a brief history, because I'm going somewhere with this. The Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah King. He gave them 40 more years, and in the year A.D. 70, the Romans burned Jerusalem, the temple scattered them into the diaspora all over the world. But God had a plan, and God had a man. In the 1800s, there was a man named Theodore Herzl. He's considered to be the father of Zionism today. 
He was an Austrian, and God put it in his heart for the Jews to have their homeland again. He is considered and lauded by them today. As a matter of fact, they have Mount Herzl in Israel. If you go to Israel, you could go to Mount Herzl and visit it. But he is considered the father of the Zionist movement of today. Then, in the course of history, 1917, this British man named Lord Balfour, he makes a declaration. They had gained control over much of the Middle East. God had given the British the victory over um, many of the, the, uh, the Ots and the, the Ottomans, the Turks, and so forth. And Britain declared that the Jewish people needed to have a homeland of their own. Matter of fact, he made this statement of British support for the establishment in Palestine, that's what it was known as at the time, of a national home for the Jewish people. Then in the 1940s, we have the, the war and we have the Holocaust. Millions of Jews are exterminated in death camps. And those who survived, if you see any of these shows on, on TV, these Israeli shows or Jewish shows, you'll see when they show pictures of the Holocaust and them coming out of those death camps, the ones that survived looked like nothing but skin and bones, didn't they, Sarah? They looked like just skin and bones, literally. That's it. Because of the way they had been treated in the Holocaust and in those camps. But in 1947... There was a UN partition plan declaration made November the 29th, 1947, that was adopted that the Jews were to have their homeland. This was after the war, and the survivors were decreed to have a homeland. They were supposed to have a nation and establish a nation again. So the British drew, they gave the British mandate. The Balfour Declaration was key. God used that man, that Lord in England, to be able to establish the beginnings of a plan. They drew out a map to give them. As a matter of fact, from what I understand, they drew a larger map than the slither that the Jews have now because the Arabs made a fuss about it and all of that. And so to please them, they kind of they cut it. And so that they drew out the slither that is now the Jewish people's homeland the nation of Israel. That was 70 years ago from November of 2017. And I don't know if any of y'all saw this or not, but Vice President Pence, I believe, was the one that did this, and they had a special ceremony, a special celebration of that UN declaration. Um, and they celebrated that because it had been 70 years. So then in May 14th of 1948 which is 70 years ago from what, what, what nation? I mean, what time period? 2018. 70 is a pretty important number in Scripture. And 70 years ago, on May 14th of 1948, God fulfilled the prophecy that was spoken in Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 9. God birthed the nation of Israel, in one day. David Ben-Gurion declared Israel's independence as a nation on that day. 
And Israel was reborn again in one day, exactly like God said in Isaiah 66. God had already prophesied it. Since then, there was the Six-Day War for Jerusalem. They've had the Yom Kippur War. They've had the rebirth of the IDF, the rebirth of an army for them, a very effective army by all accounts as well. All of this was the work of God on behalf of his people. And the land is now blossoming. When I was listening to something over the weekend, actually, and they were talking about when the Jews first came back, they, people laughed at them because the land was desolate. It, it, it was swampy. It was, it was um, filled with bugs and all that kind of stuff from the swamps and the marshes. It was, it was like, you mean you paid money for that? And now if you see some of the programs that are shown from Israel today, they're beautiful. The land is beautiful over there in most of the places. Some of the places are still desert-type areas, but they are building it up. And they've got, they're selling wine all over the world. They've got huge grapes. They've got some of the best products that are getting exported from that land because it's blossoming and it's budding just like God said it would. Okay? God's blessing is on the Jewish people. Now, I want to clarify something for you. The Jews are just like many of us. There are people that are um, just human beings, Gentiles, which simply means everybody that's not a Jew. And they're just like us. In the Gentile world, you have people that are lost as a haint. They don't care nothing about God. They're not searching for God. They, they, God's going to have to go get them because God's not in their radar. And then there are some that are religious, and they do their church thing every week, and they pay their tithe, and they think they're in the in club, and they think they're okay. And then you got the real sincere remnant that loves Jesus Christ and is serious about the kingdom of God. Same thing with the Jews. you got secular Jews. They don't care anything about God. They're not doing any of the religious stuff. They're not even observing the feast or any of that. And then you got the religious Jews that are not messianic, they care about the Torah. They care about what God said, but they're stuck in the Old Testament and under Moses' law. And then you've got Messianic Jews that love Jesus Christ, and they're on fire for the kingdom of God, and they're trying to spread the gospel to their brethren. So it's no different. So when we talk about the Jewish people, we're not exalting them as if they are some special tribe. They have to come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Yeshua, the Messiah, the same way we do. Everybody has to be saved through faith. So, so they are no different from us in that sense. The beauty of the church is that Paul said in Ephesians 2, God has broken down the middle wall of partition and he's made the two into one new man. So now the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's coming back for is composed of both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Praise God. And we need to be rejoicing over that. Jews are coming home to Jesus they are coming to the knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. And that should cause us to rejoice. When Jesus gave the parable of the prodigal son, there is an application to that. And the father, the elder son, remember in that parable, was upset 
because God was giving them, you know, his approval when they came back and was rejoicing. And instead, the Lord, the Father in that instance said, should we not rejoice that the dead has come to life again? So the job of the church today is to welcome and be excited that the Jews are coming home. They are coming to know Yeshua, the Messiah. By the, by the thousands and by the millions, it is uh, it's awesome. It's wonderful. And it's interesting, I did not know this, but a large degree, if not the beginnings of it, of the Messianic Jewish movement that is sweeping the earth today began in the 1970s with what we call the, Jewish, the Jesus movement. I remember the Jesus movement very well. I was so excited because, you know, I grew up, I grew up in the Pentecostal realm, and I love the Pentecostals. I love what I, I love my foundation. I don't despise it at all. But one thing that just wasn't the greatest for me was the Southern gospel music. <laughs> I liked the sound of the Bee Gees and the, you know, Chicago and and the the Beatles and you know whatever. I I like the '60s and '70s sound. And when the Jesus movement came in, guess what? We got contemporary Christian music. And I thought I was in heaven then. I was like, yes! <laughs> so I've enjoyed groups like Keith Green and others that were the pioneer of that. And the contemporary Christian praise and worship music of today owes them a great debt. Um, because they did pioneer it. In that, in that time period, you had, you had people that were hippies, that were rock and rollers, coming to Jesus Christ, that, were, that God delivered out of drugs and addictions, like Keith Green and others. And they got excited about Jesus, and they took all their stuff that they were playing for the devil, and they started playing it for the Lord. And it opened up a brand new, a brand new move of God that we're still benefiting from today when we sing so many of the songs and the praise songs that we sing today, and it's wonderful. So I praise God for what he did. But some of those hippies were Jews. One of the Messianic rabbis that I like to listen to, he's given his testimony, and he talked about that, how he was, he was a drug addict. He was all into the rock and roll stuff. And God saw fit through Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel in California who started that whole movement. I mean, God just started it through them. And it's a mighty move of God in this day. And he welcomed in, and he went out, and he sought and brought in a bunch of these people, and they were set free and changed. I mean, you think about the life of Keith Green. He, he was totally radically changed from what he had been before. And his, his ministry, in my opinion, I, I just, I, I grieved when he died. I, I literally cried because I was so upset when the Lord took him. I couldn't understand that. But he had a powerful and impactful ministry as well as many others. So today, we have lived to see the fig tree blossoming and budding. And Jesus says that that is the last generation who will see everything else come to pass. So as we launch out in this study, we're going to be studying about all the everything else that's going to be coming to pass between now and when he wraps it up in victory. And we have a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, and it's going to be powerful. It's because we are living in this, if we are this generation, it means to me that we are super close, especially now 
considering it's been 70 years since the Jews formed as, as a nation. Now, we don't know the depth of a generation, and that's the key a lot of people argue about. A lot of biblical scholars try to figure out, is it 40 years, is it 50 years, is it 70 years, is it 100 years? And they come up with, you know, and, and it's true that a generation throughout Scripture is different. It's different time periods. And I believe God did that for a reason, because if it was just 40 years, then we would have all said, well, Jesus is coming back in, you know, 1998 or 1988. And I, I think that's, that was part of why there was that book or something that came out, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88 or something like that, because they had in mind that the generation was 40 years, and it's been 40 years since Israel became a nation, so it's time for Jesus to come back. Well, he's not going to let us know. He said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even me, not even my angels. The only one that knows that is the Father. And that's beautiful. That's because of the Jewish wedding and all of that. But anyway, so we don't know the day or the hour. So what he wants us to do is watch and be ready. That's what we have to do. We need to understand what's ahead for several reasons. And I want to wrap us up tonight considering these as we launch into this study. It is my desire to finish up every week between 8 and 8.15, somewhere in that area. And we'll see what God does week after week. But next week, we'll get into the actual study proper. And we're going to try, I'm going to try to cover, it's a major feat, because there's so much in those first three chapters that I want to bring out. But I'm going to do my best to consolidate the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and bring out the key points that I feel are on the heart of the Lord. And then we'll get into the rapture the following week. We'll start talking about the rapture and some other things. But if we are living in the days that, that Jesus spoke of, we need to understand what's ahead for several reasons. First of all, it gives the church encouragement and blessings. God promised a blessing in this book that is found in no other book in the entire scripture. So we don't need to avoid it anymore. There's blessings in reading it. And God wants to encourage us. When Paul talked about the rapture coming and some of the things that were going to happen, he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So you don't need to be afraid. This is the most exciting time to have ever been alive. Sometimes we think we would have loved to have lived with Jesus and walked with him and, you know, and been there when he healed the blind man and walked with him by the Sea of Galilee and all of those things. But I'm telling you, we are living in the most exciting days that, that have ever been because we're in the days when he's going to come back. And he has saved the best for last. Hallelujah. It also motivates the bride of Christ to purify herself. I was so excited yesterday when I was listening to Pastor preach yesterday morning because he brought out some points that went along with what I knew we were going to be covering in the study. And I loved it when he was talking about the bride and the, the dress, you remember? And the stain on the dress and all of that, you know? And I thought, I want to use that. I want to use that tomorrow night. <laughs> so anyway, that was good. We need to be purifying ourselves and making sure that our dress doesn't have any stains on it, doesn't have any rips or wrinkles on it, because he is coming back for a pure and spotless bride. We need to guard ourselves. The bride needs to guard herself. 
Guard your gateways, the TV, the radio, the things that you're taking in, things you're watching, things you're listening to, things you're allowing to get in. Watch and guard ourselves against distractions. Those things, like that clearance rack that can just take you off, and you end up leaving the, the store spending more money than you planned and, you know, spending more time. We're talking about the time stealers here. We need to be aware and capture the time stealers that take our time away. Guard yourself against those. Be ready for the groom's return, like the five wise virgins in Matthew 25. Watch and pray. It also teaches us so that we're not ignorant, but we know what's ahead, and we know the season that we're in. Provides comfort in times of turmoil and unrest today. Is that not what the world is seeking? It's comfort. Are they not looking for peace everywhere? They want world peace. They want peace in their streets. Everybody is worried and afraid and all of that. And this provides us comfort because why? Revelation is the end of the story. It tells us how it all gets wrapped up and how it all ends. We get to read ahead and know so we don't have to worry or fret about the times that we're in. I don't know what all's going to know what all's going to happen economically. I don't know any of those things. But I know this that we're in the last generation. We're going to see the return of the Lord and we're going to be ready to go when he comes back and when he calls for us. Perhaps the most important thing that this does is it motivates the church to wake up because the time is at hand. And we could see Jesus even perhaps this year. He could come tonight. And we've heard this. We've heard this. I want to address this for just a minute. You may be sitting there going, yeah, I've heard this all my life. I've heard Mama speak of this. I heard Granny speak of this. You know, I've heard it since I was knee-high, you know. But, but they didn't have what we have. They, many of them, they didn't understand that the fig tree blossomed and therefore, we're in the last generation, and now we're in the last of the last because we're seeing more and more and more of these prophecies fulfilled every single day. That's one of the reasons I think I'm so much into Fox News and CBN and, and Breaking Israel News and some of these outlets that, that I like to, to get my news from because I'm seeing all these things and I'm going, Woo! This is exciting! President Trump declared Jerusalem the eternal capital of, Jeruz of, of Israel. And I'm like, yes! That was not only historic, it's prophetic. I mean, that's key. I don't know where America is in prophecy. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us exactly where we are. We may be, I mean, ultimately all nations are going to come against Israel. So that tells me that we're either going to change our mind or we ain't going to be here as a nation anymore. One of the two, before it's all over. But that doesn't mean we give up. That means that we want the best for our nation, and we want our nation blessing Israel. God promised, I will bless those who bless you. That is still applicable today. And I will curse those who curse you. And it's interesting, when you do the word study in that, the, the words for curse are two different words. Bless is the same word. The word for curse are two different words. And God says, I will obliterate you. I will bring you to ruin. I will bring you to desolation 
if you esteem my people lightly. So not only is it a curse for curse principle, it's exponential. It's like if you don't treat my people with respect, if you don't have honor for the Jewish people, if you take them lightly and you esteem them lightly, it's going to come back on you big time, far worse than before. So God has a blessing and a curse principle, and it's all tied to Israel. So we need to wake up. The church needs to wake up. I love this. It also motivates us to get homesick. Are you homesick? Do you ever even sit and think about heaven? Do you think about the return of the Lord? Do you think about being able to see him face to face? If we understood how much he loves us, and when I wrote that novel, Celestial Secret, that was the greatest thing that the Spirit of God spoke to me through the whole thing, was I saw front and center the love of God for people like I had never seen before. It was so powerful. And I was like, I mean, that's the greatest takeaway I had from the entire book, was that God just absolutely loves us. He loves us. He loves you. Every single one of you. Do you understand that Jesus is excited to come get you? Have you thought about that? And if you understand that we're married to him, we're called the bride of Christ. If you understand us being married to him. It's like pastor was talking about yesterday with that, that groom standing there. And what's he waiting on? He's waiting to see that beautiful bride come down the aisle, come to him. Jesus is an excited groom. He wants to come get us. And when the Father says, go get your bride, we will hear that midnight cry. Do you have a homesickness? Do you have a longing to be in his embrace, to be with him? To me, that's one of the greatest things about the study of Revelation is it helps us focus on our groom and that we're going to see him soon. We're going to be with him, and this is what's ahead for us. Hallelujah. It motivates us to do the work of the ministry, to use every available opportunity and every available resource to fulfill our calling and to work faithfully. It also encourages us to read and develop an intimate relationship with Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. <clears throat> that bride and that groom, there's not going to be a whole lot of excitement in either one of them if they hadn't been spending time getting to know each other and drawing together in a close and intimate relationship, right? The, the groom's not going to be too excited about that bride, and that bride's not going to be super excited about walking down and seeing that husband, right? What makes it so beautiful and what makes it so exciting is that they've both been longing for it. They've both been developing that relationship. They've both been talking, and they're like, man, I can't wait to be with you face to face. I can't wait to be with you constantly. You know, when, when, when we're young and we're in love and we're foolish and you know all of that we can stay up all night long stay up till three o'clock in the morning 
talking on the phone with that person and, you know, that husband or that wife or that future husband or future wife. And we don't care that we got to get up in three hours and go to work again. Why? Because you're enjoying the presence of that person. You're longing. You're enjoying being with that person. Do we see our relationship with Christ like that? Do we see how precious it is that we spend time with him? I have I taught the Sunday school class about this several weeks ago, right around Christmas time. And I was focusing on it, and the Lord has not let me forget this. It's still been, been uh, meditating and, and flourishing inside of me. Worship is really a recognition of his worth. It's, it's a recognition of his worth. It's a recognition and an esteem of who he is and that he is worth my praise. He's worth my time. So when we spend time with the Lord, do, let us not rush through it, but let us realize he's worth every moment we can spend with him. He's worth getting to know him. He's worth talking to him. He's worth listening to and letting him talk with us and developing that intimate relationship. Billy Graham, you know, he just passed away, and one of the things that I heard that was one of the later things that he said when he was asked, he was asked if he could change anything, what would it be? And he said, I would travel less and pray more. He came to realize how valuable and how precious it was to just focus on Jesus and just to spend time with him. The other thing it causes us to do is pray and intercede for the lost. Because I'll never forget this, and I'm about to close. The Lord had me read the book of Revelation all the way through in two or three days very quickly. And as I told you, I'd kind of avoided it up to that point um, because it was just not, I mean, I would read through it as part of a reading or whatever. But it, it wasn't a book that I would kind of go back to. You know, we have our favorite books in Scripture. A lot of us will go constantly back to the Psalms or whatever. And uh, so I had kind of a, avoided Revelation to some degree. But the Lord spoke to me several years ago. This was way before I ever started trying to teach Revelation. And he took me through that exercise. And what that did for me, what he showed me through doing that was this key thing. There is one main point to the book of Revelation. If you do that, you, you may find this to be true as well. And that is this. There's one book, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And your name is either in there or it's not. If it's in there, this is your future and what you've got to look forward to. If it's not, this is your future and what you've got to look forward to. And that was the theme that the Lord gave me when I did that exercise so it shows us that the whole book is summed up in that, that our names be written in the Lamb's book of life. And as Pastor said, that gives us a reason to rejoice. But it also tells us the fate of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And the thing about it is we're in the last of the age of grace we're in the last where there's a window of grace that's about to close. 
And God's going to begin to pour out judgment as he has prophesied. And there's reasons for all that. And we're going to get into all of that as we go through this book. But we who have this treasure in earthen vessels, like Paul talked about, Paul would say, I have to keep preaching. I have to keep doing this work. Why? That I may win some. I might not win the masses. I might not win them all. But I have to do it. God put it in my heart, just like Jeremiah. He couldn't shut up because God had put it in his heart. He had to do it. And so he did that, and he did it to win some. So it motivates us to do the work of our ministry and to pray and intercede. So I praise God for what he's already showed us through this book and what he's going to show us. But the window of grace is fastly ending, and we need to pray and intercede for those who don't know him and be about his work. Now, as I close, I want to do this. I, I know most all of you that are here. There are a few that I don't. And so I don't ever want to take for granted that everybody that's listening to any message knows the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. But I would simply ask you this. If you cannot be absolutely, positively certain that if you died or the Lord came tonight before you even got home, that your name would be found written in that book, you can do that before you leave this building tonight. And I invite you to do that because that is the key. That is the most important thing is to be found with our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So I invite you to do that. And if that is true of anyone in this building, come and see me or Brother Todd and we'll be glad to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ this night and have that secured before you leave this building is very important. But the last thing that I want to do for the rest of us and for all of us that are here that know the Lord is I want us to pray. And I want us to pray specifically that God will stir up the gift of God that's in every one of us because he is coming soon. And whatever he wants us to do, we must do quickly. He said to occupy till I come. It means to keep carrying on the business of the kingdom, to do exactly what he's called you to do and what he's given for you to do. And I want us also to pray that we will be excited about the coming of the Lord and that God would lay a burden upon us also to pray for the lost and for the prodigals, that their names would be in that Lamb's Book of Life as well. Because not only do I want to go, Brother Fox used to say this. He used to say uh, something about, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to take as many as I can with me. Right? And that ought to be our motivation. Not only that we go. You know, I pray for that. One of the, Hezekiah was a great king of Israel. God, God had blessed him. But somehow in his latter days, he made what I would call one big blunder. He said, well, at least there'll be peace in my days when God had showed him some things that were to come. I don't want that. I want there to be peace not only for me, 
but also for my children, for my grandchildren. As long as there's a line that's tied to me, I want them to be blessed. I want God's Spirit to pour out on them. I want them to be favored of the Lord too. So we need to pray and intercede for ourselves and for others and that we would get 